If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Well, we're really excited about today's podcast. We have a really special guest with us. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a movie that was shown in theaters nationwide. It was called Blind Eyes Opened. And it was shown just for one night only, shining a light on sex trafficking in America. And on today's One Voice podcast, we have the honor of speaking with Lexi, who's one of the faces and voices of the film. She's a brave survivor who shared her story of trafficking and exploitation and and also just where she's found healing and hope. And really excited to have you on the podcast today, Lexi. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited to be here. It's funny, I actually read your book uh, while I was attending college as part of course I was taking on um, holistic child development childhood trauma and I read oh. your book Hush so oh. I'm super excited to be here that's so crazy Aww. what school did you go to Lee University wow thanks for sharing that I hope you loved it didn't trash it <laughs> nope I still have it awesome Aww. well that's really cool to hear well it's neat that our paths have crossed this way and who would have known right <laughs> right it's really cool just to have you know, seeing your face um, on that film and then to have sort of heard about you from other victims and advocates that I know. But most importantly, I feel like you are just such a light in this very dark, dark issue that is plaguing our communities. And I would love for you just to sort of unpack your story for us. And then, you know, from there, we can sort of get into some things that you've learned that we could help educate families and parents. And, you know, how can we sort of notice signs of grooming from traffickers? And, you know, how can we learn from your story? What have you learned now that you're out of that horrific situation that you were in and all of that? So if but could you start from the beginning and share as much as you feel comfortable with, Lexi? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for that compliment, because that's really my goal. Anytime I share my story is is for people to realize that there is hope, whether mm-hmm. they've gone through it or they're just overwhelmed by the issue, because that's a, that's very much a thing, too. Like the statistics are huge. We're just realizing more and more how pervasive this is, even in America and middle class homes. And so right. uh, thank you so much for that. And I'm actually one of those kids like I was raised in a middle class, typical you know, American leave it to Beaver family. Mm-hmm. Um, my family was really involved in my church. Like every time the doors were open, my mom was a youth leader, uh, very involved in our community. I went to a private Christian school, elementary school. Okay. And we were definitely that family that you looked at us and you're like, man, they just have it all. Yeah. Like, yeah. I want to be like them, you know? Mm. And what people didn't realize was that they're, um, was so much trauma going on in my life behind the scenes. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that that is actually kind of follows the bloodline of my family. Like it's been this, this thing that's been this secret that no one really talks about. Mm. Um, but it's definitely been a part of my family's like, I don't know, 
I don't want to say legacy, but yeah. kind of. Mm. Um, Just like a backdrop of trauma, unspoken yeah. secret trauma. Okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so mm. whenever, you know, things like that would happen, it would just kind of be like, a, oh, you know, sorry that happened. No big deal. Like, we're just going to scoot that under the rug and forget about that. Mm. So my story really begins um, well before I was trafficked. I was trafficked between the ages of um, 10 to 13. Wow. Um, but I actually started being sexually abused as a toddler mm. by some of my cousins, mm. um, which is, you know, as you and your listeners know, it's not too uncommon for people to have a backdrop of trauma before a, a predator finds them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I had just read actually yesterday that the majority of studies show that about 70 to 90 percent of sexually exploited kids were sexually abused as, as children prior to being exploited. So that is such right. a huge and, number, and it would go along right along with your story as well as many of the other ones that we've heard, yeah. Yeah, so my story kind of be- begins there. I mean, that's where I learned how to get through those things, and really mm. sexual activity became part of play for me in my life very early on. Mm. And so fast forward, um, those cousins ended up moving away. No one really found out about what was, was going on until – a little bit later. Um, but as they moved out of state, um, someone else kind of came into the picture and my family has always been, um, just the type that kind of picks up on those that are are a little bit lost. And, uh, my grandmother has always been one to take in the teenagers in her, in her neighborhood that are, you know, growing in a bad home, don't really have someone to look after them, care for them. They're being neglected stuff like that. And, um, so she took in this boy that lived in her cul-de-sac. Um, and he started coming over for family dinners and was just kind of around when I was around, he was actually probably at her house more than I was. Mm. Um, but anytime I came over, he was there and Mm -hmm. I was over quite often because my family is this really tight knit Italian family. We Mm -hmm. always had Sunday family dinners without fail. Mm -hmm. And, um, my grandmother is also kind of like a second mom to me because my mom had me when she was in high school. So I was very close to her. And anytime I could go over to her house, I was there. Mm-hmm. So um, a relationship kind of started developing between me and this boy. And this boy was, uh, I guess, about 15, 16 when I first met him when I was around 10. Okay. And like most predators do with children, things start out as a, as a game. So we would be playing with Legos and then it would turn into a tickle fight, which would turn into a wrestling, which mm. would, you know, would just kind of evolve. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned that that isn't uncommon. No, um, no. And in those moments, I would just kind of trigger back to, you know, everything that had happened previously. And I would just freeze. Mm-hmm. With your cousins. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just kind of like, because I, I had, I tried to fight them off a couple of times and whenever I did, they would get violent so much. So I, I, I almost died one time and um, mm. I actually really don't know how I survived that. I think that was literally the hand of God, but wow. um, I'd be in these moments and kind of go back to that place of freedom. Just like, okay, just, you know, kind of go off to the corner and it'll be over before you know it. Mm. And I think like a lot of, um, a lot of people nowadays, they think silence is um, yes. Mm. And he assumed my, you know, lack of, obviously I was 10, you know, so what kind of consent can I give anyway? But yeah, sure. um, 
that's not really a thing. Um, no. But he just kind of would take it further and further and further just because I wasn't fighting and I wasn't, you know, resisting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so that went on for, there was kind of a grooming period where there was no one else involved mm-hmm. um, for about a year. It was like a good year where we kind of he developed this relationship and it was very different than that I had with my cousins. He was very affectionate. I thought he really cared about me and he loved me. Um, in the trafficking world, we would call this being Romeoed. There's different types of pimps and different types of ways they um, will, uh, the methodology in which they traffic people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, the, we would call him a more of a, a Romeo kind of using romantic tactics, making me feel like uh, we had a real relationship and we were in love. Um, granted, I kind of suspected you know, I, I, I remember wondering, you know, I bet he has a real girlfriend in his high school. Um, but I still was, uh, had grown very attached. So sure. one day, um, the, the point at which it, it all kind of shifted was he had been teaching me how to dance for him. And I thought it was just for him. And I, I liked making him happy and all this stuff. And so one day, he um, told me to pretend like I was riding my bike uh, um, on this path that kind of uh, went through the cul-de-sac into the kind of this wooded area. But if you took it, you could cut, cut across into his backyard. So no one would see me directly walking over to his house. Mm-hmm. So I did that. When I got there, there was another boy there that I had never met. He was older than him. So this guy was probably about, I don't know, 19 or something. And he just kind of commanded for me to dance for his friend, give his friend a, a lap dance. And so I just kind of did because uh, I was scared um, because one of the times that he raped me, really the first time, he threatened me and he told me if I said anything that he would do the same thing to my younger sister. Uh, yeah. So even though there was this element of kind of being intoxicated by him, it was really rooted by fear. Um, but, but to survive, you just kind of push that, the fear side away and you kind of focus on the affection and, you Mm -hmm. know, the positive things, which our brains are really wired to Mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, you know, like a lot of survivors, that's what I did. And so he tells me to dance for his friend, his friend's like, Oh, she's so cute, blah, blah, blah. And then he offers me to his friend for a hundred dollars. And I'm, uh, 11 at this at this time and I just like like I just froze and I was like what does that what does that even mean like what is about to happen I was just in total shock and he looked at me and he grabbed me by the hand and he said you'll do what I say mm. and I knew I knew what that meant yeah. and so he took me up to his bedroom threw me at his friend he watched and that's kind of where it began mm. um from there it, he had me come over another time. And this is, so this um, all happened in the suburbs of Chicago, mm. um, by the way. I live in Nashville now, but it happened in the suburbs of Chicago. And during this time, this was kind of early 2000s, so dawn of the internet, dawn of internet porn. And um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're super familiar with R. Kelly's, yeah. um, you know, story, yeah. but during that time, that is when his sex tape came out. And I actually didn't realize this until I watched the documentary. But uh-huh. um, he had me come over to his house another time. And he and two of his friends 
uh, raped me. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very violent and volatile. And there's, there's things that they did that I've always wondered, like, how did they, like, come up with some of this stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it, just, it didn't make any sense. And then when I saw the R-, R. Kelly documentary, I was like, oh, my gosh, they literally reenacted that tape. Wow. Like, they literally reenacted the, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um which like I feel like it just kind of proves all of the research on pornography and how, just gonna people and how it's affecting society yeah. and yeah. that it's not just like oh you can just kind of lackadaisically consume whatever you want and it's Mm-mm. not going to affect you Mm-mm. um it's it like so directly true. affected me yeah and, and how it, it does it escalates it begins with you know viewing something but then now now you're acting it out and now you need more. Now you need younger. So it it is, it is this big underbelly that people want to deny that it has anything to do with it, but absolutely it does. And your story shows that. Right. Yeah. So from there, I'm assuming they used that footage to start advertising me in the community. Mm-hmm. And um, from that point is when I realized that he was involved in an organized crime group mm-hmm. Um because after that, he would they they would arrange it based on when I just happened to be at my grandmother's house, mm-hmm. which is pretty often, especially in the summers. I was I was over there quite a lot, and he told me whenever I saw a car a car pull up, I was supposed to kind of come over same way, pretend like I was riding my bike in the neighborhood, uh-huh. cut across the backyard in his back door. So this whole time, my family thinks I'm just exploring, you know, having adventures around the neighborhood like I normally would. Like there was a, no like reason a normal- to kid yeah right yeah like yeah a lot of people are like well how did they not know you're missing and right i was only ever over there for like 30 minutes 45 max like mm. absolute max mm. these sessions were never very long mm-hmm. um because they knew like oh yeah you have to understand smart. these people are in criminal business they're business minded they're right. not dumb like right so um once that began that went on for about two years. Um, two, I know I know two solid summers, and it's all very fuzzy. Um, they would have me uh, drink roofies. Uh, I'm assuming that's what it was. They'd have me drink like a little bit of a water bottle before the client would get there, and I was required uh, to watch porn before the client would get there. So I knew what was going to be expected of me. Mm. And wow, uh, porn ended, was even used in yeah. Your tra- mm-hmm. in your exploitation and in the abuse. Yep. Wow, yeah. Yep. Um, and it ended not because anyone figured it out or anything like that. It ended because I hit puberty. Mm-hmm. And once I had breasts, there was like this whole awful summer of uh, these men rejecting me. And some of them being so angry that I could not fulfill their fantasy anymore that they would try to smother me. Oh. One of them ripped off his condom and gave me herpes on purpose. Oh, Lexi, um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, it was just, um, and obviously that really sank into, you know, like my identity and being ashamed of my body. And, and I had so many body issues growing up and struggled with a really bad eating disorder for a long time. Mm. Um, but that's how it ended. Mm. And it, wow. it stinks and like it's the hardest part you know a lot of people are like well they're all still out there and can't you do anything I'm like mm. I can't I, I wasn't allowed to even know anyone's name like yeah. I, I had asked someone's name one time mm. and 
I got in trouble for that. And so I was told like, you know, I only know the one kid that had trafficked me mm-hmm. that had kind of recruited me. That's the only person that I actually know their name. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, I have no idea who they are. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are also curious about the type of men that would come in. I think people have this like CD mm-hmm. idea of, you know, who pays to have sex with a child. You know, they have to be some gross, disgusting old man. Mm. No, these, Break these it down guys for were us. like, mm-hmm. these guys were, they, it, I'm telling you, I feel like they were coming on their lunch break from work. Most of them were dressed nice in a suit. Yeah. They'd take off their jacket. Most of them had a ring. Um, mm-hmm. These They range from ages like, I don't know, 25, the oldest being maybe in his 50s or something. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it was kind of that mid-30s, 40s. Mm-hmm. And there are people that you would see on the street, you might bump into them and have a normal conversation with. You would never suspect that they literally just came from raping a, a, a 10, 12 year old. Mm-hmm. Like you would never think that. No, it breaks down every sort of stigma, right? That we want to, we want to yeah. pretend like it's all of these things that don't have anything to do with our life. But in fact, it is affecting our life. It's the people like you said, that we see every day, not only those who are buying sex, but those, you know, who are being forced, who are being exploited. They are the ones that you're walking by every day too. They're not the kid that with the duct tape on their face, you know, that a lot of people mm-hmm. put on the posters, right? right? It's mm-hmm. it's the little girl that's riding her bike down your road and you don't know. Right. We've got to be willing to look beneath the surface. Yeah, the thing about it is, is like the duct tape and rope and chains and all that's not required because they do it mentally. Right. They don't have to physically. Mm-mm. Yes, some people do get like kidnapped and, you know, held hostage and mm-hmm. those things do happen, but it's not the, it's actually not the majority. Mm-hmm. The majority of the time, so right, like victims are walking around with you. They're in the nail salon right next to you. They're getting their hair done right next to you. Mm-hmm. And I think these, a lot of the stereotypes are developed around who buys, who is being bought, all that stuff. It's people that we would never have contact with, which means we don't have to take any responsibility for helping them right. and to doing anything about it. Right. Because it's it's out of our realm. It's out of our community. But mm. that's mm. a lie. It's everywhere. It just looks different depending on where you are. It's so good. Yeah, it's so true. And so from that, what would your answer be then to, and this is hard for me as well, um, just, you know, having grown up and being sexually abused in my own home and, you know, what could I have done differently or what could my parents have done differently? Could, what could my mom have done differently? Um, and that's hard, hard to answer that. But mm-hmm. do you have an answer for that? Is there, you know, ha- being a young girl growing up in this kind of situation, being vulnerable one, it was the fact that you were sexually abused already. You had that trauma coming in. That is a huge, you know, mm-hmm. already a vulnerability. But then secondly, the mind stuff. Do you think it's all, is it all rooted in the previous trauma, you know, where you're you're more vulnerable to the mind games, the manipulation, the blackmail, the control? Or was there more, you know, that maybe parents could recognize another another mom yeah. listening today that could say okay mm-hmm. how am i going to empower my daughter to not succumb mm-hmm. to the grooming right um i think the biggest vulnerabilities for me wasn't necessarily the trauma that occurred beforehand it was 
my lack of knowledge okay. because I didn't even have the vocabulary for penis, vagina, mm. none of that until mm. fourth grade. Mm. I was raised in a typical Christian home. I didn't get, you know, the birds and the bees talk yeah. um, or the purity talk until I was in fourth grade. And mm. by then, oh my gosh, like mm. some of it, so much was going on. And then I had so much shame. I was just whenever say, I, so then you get the purity oh talk goodness. and you're already yeah. quote unquote I'm like, impure. Like, well, I'm screwed. This yeah. is over. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I'm going, I'm going to hell. It's done for me. Like I remember, you know, being little and laying down watching TV, having like the remote laying on my belly and it would catch my heartbeat. And I would think that I was pregnant and my family was going to find out like, those are the kind of fears that I had when I was when I was little them finding out and kicking me out of the house and you know just all of these lies that had been whispered whether um, in private by the enemy or by people that that were abusing me Um, I just thought that all that stuff would would come true and then Mm -hmm. I get this purity talk that kind of um, enforced those fears a little bit and so I always tell parents like I don't care how old your kid is, like, as they're starting to talk, as you're, you know, say, where's your nose? You need to say, where's your penis? Yeah. <laughs> where's yeah. Your like, they need to know those words. And that might mean you might have an embarrassing moment at, you know, the grocery store where your kid is yelling, you know, penis vagina. But <laughs> <laughs> at least they know. Yeah. That, right. If that if that means, you know, if, if they, God forbid, a predator ever has access to them, whether it's you know, their Sunday school teacher or their babysitter, whoever, or another kid that you don't know the trauma that kid has that they're Mm -hmm. going to then bring into their play session with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Then your child has a vocabulary to say, no, you cannot touch my penis. No, you cannot touch my vagina. And that breaks that fantasy immediately for, for someone who is a predator and it scares them off because they're like, Oh, this kid is going to tell like, so I'm, I'm out. I'm done. They have knowledge. They're, they've been right. empowered with education and these certain types of things. When we leave our kids out of those conversations because we're afraid, we're not we're doing them harm. We're doing them more harm than we are good. Right, exactly. I always so say bad information is, is better than no information with right? kids. Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, the second thing is, you know, when my mom, my mom and I have had conversations about this and we've done a lot of healing Um, through this together. And one of the things, her biggest regret is that she didn't trust the discernment of the Holy Spirit Mm. because there were, when it, like with my cousins, um, she would, she had like a, you know, that, that gut check of like something is off, but because she couldn't name it, she didn't feel like she had the right to act on it. Mm. Mm. And so she allowed them to continue to have access and for me to continue to play with them and be babysat with them and, and all of this stuff. And now looking back, she's like, I wish I would have trusted that. It's like never, it would have never happened. Mm-hmm. Like had I, had I just trusted it? Like, I don't have to have a reason. Yeah. I'm your mother. If I have a sense, that's, that's enough. And I don't, I don't have so to true. explain it. I don't, I don't owe someone, uh, you know, a, a reason why I'm not going to let my child hang out with their child. Right. That's enough. You know, and so trusting that whenever people have that, and I even say, I even tell people to do the same thing. If you're out in public and you have a gut check about, you know, if you're at at a fast food line and you see this interaction between a couple and it just feels weird, or you're at a truck stop or a gas station, you see something, it's just kind of like, 
but mm, there's something off about that. Mm. You can call the human trafficking hotline number and leave an anonymous tip. Police are not going to descend on the place. You know, like <laughs> nothing crazy is going to happen. But just from people doing that, they are able to catch a lot of uh, traffickers and kind of intercept people out of the system just from concerned people trusting that gut check and making a phone call. Absolutely. When did you end up telling? I started talking a little bit about the abuse, not the trafficking part. Um, but when I was in sixth grade and I started in youth groups, I actually told my youth pastor and his wife. And the best words that I had was molestation. Mm-hmm. And I think most most survivors of, of any trauma, you always like put out the least bit of information to see how it's going to be handled Mm -hmm. before you unload yeah and you never unload all at one time Mm -hmm. like like over a long period of time that Mm -hmm. things just kind of trickle out yeah you're waiting to see if someone will catch the little things you're saying yeah right and so um god bless my poor youth pastors they were like fresh out of college they had no training around this and their jaws just hit the floor because like like i said my family was like that family that like everyone looked up to and they're just like wait what there's no way Mm. and so they just kind of went into like what they knew legally had to happen they're like well your mom has to know either we can tell her you can tell her Mm. and i was like well i i wanted to come for me so i wrote her a letter and i hid uh underneath a bed in my house because I thought she was going to be so angry. And of course she wasn't, she was devastated. She was crying. Mm -hmm. And, um, but there was never any follow-up, none, zero. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't say, you know, Hey, why don't you come early for youth group and we'll like do a Bible study, like with me and and another woman, like no mentoring. They never offered therapy for my family. And back then in church, Mm -hmm. there was kind of this like vendetta against, um, mental health right. counselors mm-hmm. and that whole thing. It was like, yeah. either you have faith or you don't. And if you go to a counselor, you don't have faith, yeah. which is so Just ridiculous. Pray harder <laughs> or forgive. Right. right? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. 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 Yes. Like that's the answer, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they weren't offered any more resources. So mm. they just kind of it kind of got swept under the rug mm. and well, it was like um, they got one point for actually like believing and like wanting to tell your parent like that. A lot of churches don't even do yeah. that, you know? So they got one point, That's but true. then they failed on the next step. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of became, I, I noticed that I kind of got tiptoed around a little bit, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. Um, like I became this like bomb that no one wanted to step on or mm. cause to erupt. And so people just kind of like avoided me. <laughs> you almost felt like they were um, afraid of you. They were walking on eggshells around you. Mm-hmm. See, that's horrible. Right, so many survivors. They just, they just didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's their fear, but then they put their fear onto the victim. And now you have to mm-hmm. carry their feelings and yours. Right. Right. So that was that was your teen years then. So nothing happened. (laughs) Your mom knew she did Mm -hmm. comfort you, come alongside you, validated you, but nothing happened and nothing even happened to that. The boy, the trafficker. Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is that the trafficking was going on during that time. Oh, so somebody had taken it seriously and taken me to a child psychologist that could help unravel and pull out a lot of that trauma. Uh They could have been caught and the ending of my story could be totally different. Those people could all be in jail. Wow. You know, Mm -hmm. but 
because, you know, lack of training, it just kind of nothing, nothing really happened with it at all. And I never shared any more than that um, until college. And college is when a lot of my memories started resurfacing um, because I I actually studied psychology, Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, wounded, we want to heal. and. Oh, and, totally. Uh, that was my story. It was like right? once I took abnormal psychology, I was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. I'm learning about myself yep. and I can get a degree yep. to help others. <laughs> Count me in. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was that it was that exact class, abnormal psychology and trauma <sighs> that I like had a moment. And I was like, wait, this isn't normal. Like people aren't like don't want to die all the time and they don't mm. have trouble sleeping and right. they don't want to eat and they don't think that what like yeah you're like this is you're calling this abnormal this is my daily life right I'm like this has been my life as long as I've ever known it like and so I had this moment and and I just you know I felt like the Holy Spirit was like if you ever want to help anyone you have to let me heal you first Mm. and I was like a I really want to help people. So, okay, I will do this. And my, my campus had a free counseling center, which had that not been available, I probably wouldn't be alive today, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, it was very much like at a dire point um, in how the trauma was affecting me that I was, you know, very close to either taking my life or my eating disorder taking my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when kind of memory started um, resurfacing. And, um, I learned about human trafficking while I was in college. I didn't identify right away because of those stereotypes that are out mm-hmm. there. Right. Like, mm-hmm. well, I wasn't kidnapped and no one put duct tape on me. And so I guess that's not me. My thing was just kind of some weird sexual abuse thing. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Um, not that, not that one is worse than the other or greater or anything like that, but I think, um, identifying was important because then I was able to be connected with a community of men and women that have endured the same thing and that yeah. their journey was validating like, Oh my gosh, you, that happened to you too. Because, you know, everyone was calling me crazy. Like mm-hmm. my, I was really um, disconnected from my family for about two years. I had people, family members calling me, telling me I was nuts. They're like, you had to have seen some kind of movie and you think it's your life and it's real. I'm like, I have never, nor would I ever Mm. see a movie like what I am dealing with right now. No. I just had to like cut them out. Like I just had to like, like, I love you. (laughs) I will like, I will not treat you differently when I see you, but Mm. I know that I have to walk through this for myself. Yeah. And it sucks that you can't be a part of that. And it Mm -hmm. like really hurts that you can't be a part of that. Yeah. And they're missing out. Like I still have to do it. Right. Wow. Right. Gosh, I'm so sorry you had that. That is just, you know, you don't deserve that. You you deserve everyone to come alongside you and, and be what you needed at that time. But I'm so grateful that, you right. know, you continued to move forward and didn't let those kind of negative comments or disbelief or just stupidity hold you back from all that God had for you in your life. And wow, that was a big decision on your part. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I wasn't sure that I would ever have connection with my family ever again but I just trusted that you know it's like you know what God is a God of like restoration and reconciliation so I'm I'm just going to trust that at some point it's all going to loop back Mm -hmm. and 
be fine. And it, and it did in time, mm, not right yeah. away. Like mm. it took a, a lot of time and there was a process around that, but it did happen. Mm. One question I have Lexi, because yeah. like you, I was in college and it was kind of like things started resurfacing and it was really fuzzy and foggy, but I was like, Oh, okay. These aren't just, you know, figments of my imagination. They're real uh, memories yeah. that I have. And for you, what did it look like when it came to just the effects of the abuse and unhealthy coping? And for me, it was numbing and whether it was smoking pot or drinking, um, I mm-hmm. even, you know, to this day struggle with OCD. Um, so how has it looked for you? Is it some of the same stuff, just completely different? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I hope you're ready to hear about a poster child because that was me. <laughs> was extremely depressed. I dealt with suicidal thoughts. Um, from like the age of 12 um, was self-harming. Mm. I didn't eat. I was anorexic and also uh, over-exercising. Um, I was like just, you know, obsessed with, with calories and mm. anything that I could control in my, in my world, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, it also was a form of self-punishment because a lot of the shame that kind of came in with the purity talk. Um mm. And I dealt with anxiety, panic, um, night terrors. I would wake up just screaming in cold sweat. Mm. All, I mean, kind of just the gamut, really, yeah. all of it. Um, there was a season where I was binge drinking at a Christian university. I was in class, had vodka <laughs> in my water bottle. That, like, that kid just kind of like... <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, oh. all, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> So before the, you know, your mom found the letter that you wrote for her, I mean, obviously you were showing a lot of signs of distress and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it had to be screaming, I would think, as I'm a mother of a little boy, if I think of him at that age and these things are going on, I'm looking at my kid going, what the hell is going on with you? Mm-hmm. Where I'm thinking we have this normal cookie cutter life. So does your mom talk about now, like turning a blind eye to that stuff or... Um, yeah. So I also, my parents were divorced. They divorced, they married, um, because my mom got pregnant very young in high school. It obviously didn't work out because, you know, just not ready. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And there were a lot of issues, um, with my biological father kind of at the same time this stuff was going on. And so she kind of just assumed that it was that. So when I was, little mm-hmm. and I had depression, it comes out as anger. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so she would find me in my bedroom screaming and chucking balls at the wall over and over and over until she thought I was going to blow a hole through the wall. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and she just thought it, I was, you know, just mad, you know, typical, I don't know, yeah. angsty preteen yeah. type mm-hmm. of stuff. Like mm-hmm. she's kind of chalked it up to that, but looking back, she can kind of add things up and see, um, I mean, I, I've had just, you go down the list of symptoms for, for a child and mm-hmm. I check a lot of them. Like I was, <laughs> I constantly had, um, uh, UTIs as a little kid. Mm-hmm. I had all kinds of, um, abdominal pain, but they can never find like an actual biological cause for it. I was sick a lot. I had headaches, uh, a ton. Um, you know, obviously I was, I was angry. I was withdrawn. I mean, just, like, oh, yeah, all, like all, all the things, but they didn't all happen at one time. So yeah. it wasn't kind of this like 
there was a one-time event and then I changed. It just was kind of a consistent thing in my life. Mm -hmm. So, And she could easily pin it on something else. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I I can put myself in your shoes too, having been sexually abused as a kid and around those ages. If that were happening to me and my mom was pinning it on this other thing and I didn't want to tell, I would put it on that thing too. You know, oh, totally. so I would, li- oh I gosh, would yes. play that up. Oh, yeah, I'm really struggling with that thing that you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Not this. Well, we never really talked about it. Yeah. Like we my issues were never addressed. If anything, I was accused of being dramatic mm-hmm. and making up um, illnesses or, you know, different things like that because it was just constant. Um, I was like I was the sick kid in my family. And so. Uh, to a degree, I really felt like a burden mm. and, you know, which makes it so much worse. Like you already have all this stuff. It's like, if they only knew like yeah. all of these things. And now I'm also like draining my family financially. And it's, you know, a hassle to take me to all these doctors and different things. And there's not a reason. So people think I'm lying and, um, you know, just kind of plays into that all the lies in your head that people aren't going to believe you mm. if you tell them this one thing. And that was just kind of, we, it just never was kind of addressed up front. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts since you kind of mentioned it a few times, what are your thoughts on purity teaching purity culture now? It's tough because it's like, there is a place for it, Mm. but I think what's more important is, is talking to kids about appropriate conversations with people because what I'm seeing now and cases that like I've, I've helped women escape their traffickers that got trafficked on Instagram and got, you know, through social media platforms and there's so many messaging apps and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, kids, their predators have access to your children 24 yeah. seven. Um, whether you want to believe it or not, they do. Mm. If they have a smartphone or if there's a tablet in your house and they go in their room, you know, absolutely. So I think part of that conversation is not just like, you know, keep your legs closed and put on this, you know, turtleneck iron underwear type of thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's more of like understanding appropriate boundaries and mm. what is safe and not safe conversation and why, especially explaining the why, because yeah. when I was, when I was younger, it was just kind of like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But you know, you're like, well, why? Like what's, what's going to happen if I do? Mm. And um, yeah, you know, there's not always a cookie cutter answer for that mm-hmm. because you don't want to say, well, if you have sex, you're going to get an STD, you're going to get pregnant and no one's going to want to marry you <laughs> <laughs> because then kids meet other friends and they're like, wait, well, they're having sex with their, with their boyfriend. Yeah. They haven't gotten STD or pregnant. Right. Mm-hmm. And you yeah, know, it's popular, not about the fear, so... right? It's, it's just about empowerment. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. creating a line of communication with your kids. Yes. Right. I mean, my yeah. kids want to know the reason for everything. And right? if I'm just yeah. like, because I'm your mom and I told you so, that goes nowhere with them. And in fact, breaks down our relationship. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, you right. were asking the question, then I feel like you might be old enough to handle it. If you're really wanting to know, I really want to mm-hmm. know. Okay, well, here it is. And that creates more of a bond. And it also helps them to feel empowered and not like disempowered by just an authority figure saying, this is how it is. It's just black and white. It's never black and white. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think parents too need to understand, like you don't have to wait till you're an expert. Like you don't need to go to a class and read like 50 books on the topic. 
before you talk to your <laughs> kid. Like, yeah. In fact, the more you can be honest is like the better thing. So they mm-hmm. ask a question like way off the wall that you are not expecting your 12 year old <laughs> to ask about anal sex or mm-hmm. something like that. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> mm-hmm. it is okay for you to have that moment and be honest with them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trying to control your emotions a little bit to making sure they understand their questions. They can come to you with their questions and you're not going to get mad or be overwhelmed and, and upset with them. It's good. They're coming to you rather than Google or their friends at school, because God knows what's going to happen there. So you want that to be happening. And it's okay to say in the moment, like, Hey, you know what, can we talk about this tomorrow? Um, And you can take, take a second to breathe or to call your friend and, or, or whatever you need to do to prepare for that conversation. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to act like you're an expert to your kid. Like it's, it's good for them to know, like you're human too, Mm -hmm. and you're not perfect. Right. And, And by them knowing that you don't have the expectation on yourself to be a perfect parent, you're not going to also expect them to be a perfect child. That's really, really good. Mm. And I think it's really helpful for many parents, especially parents in the church. I'll be honest. I think we all think we have to know everything and we have to be the top expert on the topic before we then sit our kids down at this perfect time mm-hmm. right after dinner right. and we're going to just unpack it all we're going to tell you all things it's going to be beautiful yeah. and it's just not going to happen you're never going to read all the yep. books you may not right. even read one you might read a blog like and that's going to be about right. it and that's all you need what they need is you right they need that honest conversation right. they need to know your experiences your failures you know be humble talk about the hard things you're going to mess up and that's going to be actually good for your kid. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And come on, those conversations, you always knew they were coming as a kid. Like mm-hmm. that dinner before the talk was like the weirdest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for yeah. me. Yeah. It needs to be more organic. Right. And I think mm-hmm. on top of that, what you said earlier about families um, believing this stuff doesn't happen to our kids. Right. Of course it is. Right. And if it's not happening to your kid, it's happening to your kid's friend. And your kid's friend right, is telling exactly. your kid all about it and showing them mm-hmm. every Snapchat picture that they've gotten about it. So you might as well yep. start talking to them and just having that open conversation as right. it will unfold. And don't be so naive because that's yeah. a setup. That is naivety is such a setup for families oh to my go gosh. through the yeah. worst. And I think parents are always shocked to know how early they need to start these conversations. Yeah. Because really the culture starts talking to your kid about it way before you even consider (laughs) that they need to know about it. The conversation has started and guess what? You didn't start it. Mm. So you don't look like the authority to your child. They're going to keep going back to culture to learn about it because that's who started the conversation. So they trust that voice more Mm. than they trust yours. If you're behind, then your kid's going to always think that you're behind. That is so true. And you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Right. Let your voice be the first voice, the loudest voice, the most um, safe voice, you know? Yeah. That is, that is really good to you. Gosh, Lexi, how old are you? Uh, 28. Yeah. You are just full of wisdom, aren't you? That's amazing. (laughs) No, that's really helpful. And I think a lot of parents need, need to really hear, you know, that they need to just have the conversations now yeah wake up call yeah i used to when i was speaking you know i would i would speak let's say in a christian college chapel and then later in the day i would do like um 
like a women's dorm girl talk or something. We do a Q&A. Mm-hmm. And they would, I always get the question, like, when, when do you, when should we start talking to kids? Like, and this was when mm-hmm. my kids were really young. And I was like, oh, well, like, when I was pushing them out, I was like, hey, so this is like, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. This is what happened to me. Like, you there know, are bad people because, in the world. Yeah. yeah. And this is right. your parts are called this, you know, as soon as they were uh-huh. coming out, you know, but and then in one sense, it was true. You know, I, I've talked to my boys very, mm-hmm. very young about things. But, you know, now as they're getting older, there are certain things that I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, culture is so fast. They are so ahead of me mm-hmm. I am now catching right. up with my 11 year old and but I don't want to be that what you said of, of being the first person that that really hit me mm-hmm. hard because that is something I would want to be but mm-hmm. I didn't expect that I would have to be talking this soon right yeah. yeah and I love that you said that because you said something about like realizing that you have to catch up mm. and there's so many parents that I'm sure are listening to this their kids are already teenagers and they're oh my gosh I've yeah. failed. Like yeah. I haven't talked to them about anything. I've, I have so much ground and they're mm. probably feeling really overwhelmed and like, just stop right there. There's no reason for that. You need to step out of the shame spiral right now. And there's still time. They still like, you still have an influence in their life and you don't have to, you know, figure out, okay, what are all the conversations I missed and then try to cram them into one really awful after dinner session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's just figuring figuring out and starting where you're at. And a lot of times with older kids, like um, if they're listening to mainstream music, which let's be honest, no matter how much you try to stop them from it, they are. Um, mm-hmm. And taking the moments, because what people also don't realize is like the, the rhetoric of society and culture is coming in through media and what we're consuming. And our brains are literally wired Um, to pick up on patterns because it's wired for survival. And the more it can pick up on a pattern and um, anticipate something, the more it likes it because that equals survival for your brain. And so that, that applies to music. So a lot of kids, you know, are listening to a lot of music and they're getting, their brain is getting caught up in and people are like, well, I just like the beat. I don't really listen to the words, but the words are still very much getting in there. And so taking those moments, like if you're in the car driving and your kids are singing, you know, a Taylor Swift song or mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj, I'm not going to assume that everyone is like really super conservative. Yeah. No, please don't. Um, you don't want to know what I listen um, to. <laughs> you don't, Lexi. <laughs> Cover children's ears. For the beat. For the beat. Yeah, for the beat, Nicole. Right. Okay, right. It's for that one. all about the beats, man. Yeah, no. beats. Right. And so like, I'll even have these moments with myself where I'm listening. I'm like, wait, do I really believe that? Like mm. the words that I just heard totally. and I'm just yeah. singing. I know. It. Do I, do I believe that? And so mm. you can take those moments with your kids, like in the car, wherever. And you're like, so I just heard this artist say, you know, I'm going to beat and choke her and make her, you know, strip on a pole. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's okay? Mm. And that's where you can open up Oof. and have, start having conversations because they, they don't, they're not realizing that either. No. And so it, it makes yeah. them more aware of, oh, wait, like, yeah. do I want to be supporting this artist that is talking about raping, abusing women, mm-hmm. selling drugs, um, shooting people, you know, all the, the, the issues of violence that we have mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, you can even use, you know, um, articles, things that happen in your community to start talking about it. Like, hey, I don't know if you guys heard about this. Like, you know, what do you think? Especially if, you know, um, 
you find an article or, you know, if there's like January Human Trafficking Awareness Month, your kids are aware of that too. So maybe finding, finding an article about someone's story and seeing what they think about the survivor in it. So do you think it's her fault because she was messaging this person on this platform and, and she snuck out and met him and all of this and just kind of um, getting to kind of look underneath the hood and see what kind of conversations are influencing them outside of your home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then be able to correct it. Then it gives you an opportunity to correct it. Like if they do think like, oh, well, it was her fault because her skirt was too short or things like that, then you can say, no, 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 <laughs> and have those conversations and correct those things. But if you're not initiating it, it's never going to come up. They're never going to bring it up. Like they're just not, you know, like mm-hmm. they don't, they don't think about that. They're not really even fully aware of what they believe anyway. And so those conversations will help them become aware of what they think and, and if they really do want to believe that or not. And with, you know, going to the ultimate, when you think about pornography and you know how we're saying mm-hmm. that that industry is what's feeding all of this, what's your best idea for change and solutions there? You know, a lot of this is already starting to happen. I'm not sure if you follow the organization Fight the New Drug. Um, I followed them for a long time, and they actually just put out a documentary last year on the effects of human, I'm not human trafficking, sorry, of pornography mm. on relationships, on the world, on society, um, and, and all of that. And I, I love that we're kind of um, removing the shame from it and just having honest conversations about this is what it's doing to you and this is what it's doing to your brain Mm -hmm. because I think that shame is what causes people to stay in darkness with it and just it just feeds it that like you know it's like if you're just like hiding in a corner with this thing um then no one can can really help you with it Mm -hmm. but um for when it comes to parents and protecting their kids from that you have to understand that kids are really smart and all they have to do is Google search how to get around your firewall and how to get yeah. around your, your parenting system. Like, mm-hmm. so that's not the solution. The solution is not trying to just block them because they will find a way. And if it doesn't even have to be on their device, they can borrow a friend's device whose parents maybe don't have the same belief system as you do. And so I think it's, you know, upfront having those conversations about, Hey, this is why we don't, Um, take part in this activity and why it's damaging to you and damaging to your future relationships and how it feeds into these bigger issues and really talking through all of that because they don't consider that like Mm -hmm. oh they want to they just want to see body part like they're just curious it starts out with just being curious about sex about the human body um, which is normal but then it just takes a really dark turn And then they can't get out of it. And then, you know, they feel stuck and super ashamed. And so I think if those conversations start off early on, and when I say early on, I mean like seven, eight years old, six Mm. years old, because kids are starting to um, be exposed to pornography, like average, like really young now, It's like Mm -hmm. eight, nine, like way before you think Mm -hmm. that they are. Um, And so I think that, yeah, just, Again, kind of having those open conversation dialogues all the time on all different topics will always be beneficial. And two things on that. (laughs) I was thinking about a friend recently who had talked about, you know, 
pornography and her own life and an addiction that she had, um, thinking it wasn't anything other than, you know, just something that she was viewing until she realized Mm -hmm. and learned that the people that were in these videos were Mm -hmm. being exploited. They were being abused and no longer once she had that knowledge, no longer could she view it the same way. And I think that that can be a helpful piece of education for people in understanding Mm -hmm. these are victims that you're watching. This is rape that you're watching, you know? Um, Right. Absolutely. That I think is something that needs to be spoken more loudly than it is. Yeah, definitely. It's like, you don't know how someone edited something. Mm -hmm. Like you're not getting the whole story (laughs) absolutely not you're just you're getting the the chosen parts of it so yeah you're absolutely right have you been able to um remove all the images of yourself that you know of or is that still an ongoing process for you so i have not found anything i did like send you know my photos to um missing exploited children Mm -hmm. from the ages that i was when that happened Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I haven't heard anything, so I'm, I'm hoping no news is good news and it never resurfaces, but there's always that fear that, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, I'm going to get some kind of like creepy, weird email and it's going to have a link to that, you know? Um, I think that's probably just an irrational fear, but, uh, you know, things like that happen. (laughs) I know people that that has happened to and stuff. So, um, and we should, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to overlook that any of our listeners may have that fear as well for their own situation and their own abuse. And so for those who are listening who may have that that fear that maybe your images are, are still out there, there is a way to make a report. You can go to the NICMIC website, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, it's ncmec.org. And if you just click on the link, get help, there's a question that says, is your explicit content out there? You click that and you can file an actual tip and there's a whole, you know, directions on how to do that. And um, I have a lot of friends that work at that organization. I know they're legit and they want to help. So just put that in your pocket. Gosh, Lexi, this has been so good, so helpful. And just in closing, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but where do you find your greatest hope? Is it in your advocacy now? Is it, you know, in meeting with other survivors, like through that film that you just did, Blind Eyes Opened? Um, Is it in your own solitude and in your own healing space? Where where are you finding your hope now? Because you the your delivery is so like I said, you're just so full of light and and hope. And I just wonder where that all kind of comes from. Yeah, that's an awesome question, and I love it. Um, For me, my hope comes through worship, Mm. and worship has really radically changed my life because I think it integrates practicing gratitude in such like a experiential way Mm. and uh, I've actually realized that there is so much to worship than we can even than we even realize Um, like the vibrations of like being in a worship service like that actually helps your body heal and helps turn your body into an autonomic response getting this your stress hormones down Mm. getting to just really focus on what hope I have in my future and not getting so stuck on the past, but kind of refocusing and reshifting. And that's just consistently the space that, that I go to like really every single day is practicing worship. 
Wow. Well, it's been such a treat for us to chat with you, Lexi. I feel pretty confident that our paths will probably cross in some form and sometimes. So I'm looking forward to that. But until then, thank you for your voice. Thank you for your courage to share your story in so many different ways and also for just educating us and and how we can um, put an end to sexual exploitation for our kids and for our world. So thank you. Is there a way that you would want people to connect with you or would you rather them not connect with you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's fine. I am totally open to connecting with people. I'm on pretty much all social media as Lex, L-E-X, The Advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and my website is called LexiSpeaks.com if anyone wants to, you know, have me in or just, you know, fill out a, a contact form. Yeah. I am all about connecting with people. I've, I've talked with, you know, anywhere from, you know, preschool, mom groups, all the way, you know, to vice units. So right. I am, I'm open. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lexi. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.